0: 다음 video is back. Bye. 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 Is hell. Okie doke. If you have not heard the horrible breaking news yet, and you are listening to our live stream on Thursday morning, as reported by Market Watch, shares of defense contractors caught a bid in early trading Thursday as Russia's invasion of Ukraine fueled expectations. Of increased defense spending. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and we're in the midst of this year's WNUR, 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiments annual Phonathon fundraiser, the one and only time every year where we ask for your support of our home station for. Almost 26 years now, WNUR. By going to WNUR.org slash donate, This Is Hell simply would not exist if it was not for Chicago Sound Experiment. And we truly appreciate the incredible support of everyone at WNUR over the 25-plus years we have been airing on NUR. If you go to WNUR.org slash donate right now, you can show your support for all of NUR's support of This Is Hell at each of WNUR's donation levels. Chicago Sound Experiment would like to show thanks for your donation with a special gift. When going to WNUR.org slash donate, please refer to the descriptions under each donation tier, those being contributor, donor, silver, gold, diamond, platinum levels, of donation donate at the contributor level of 10 bucks and get a wnur sticker for 25 bucks you can give at the donor level and get a WNUR t-shirt and sticker. You can donate at the silver level of $50 and receive a WNUR tote bag t-shirt and sticker. Then there's the gold level of $70, which gets you a hand-picked limited edition vinyl record, a WNUR beanie, the tote bag, plus the t-shirt, and an NUR sticker. There's also the diamond level of $125, which gets you all that stuff, plus the WNUR hoodie, and finally there's the platinum level, and with a donation of $250, you get hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, as in plural, as well as the WNUR hoodie, tote pet and tote bag, the beanie, t-shirt, and sticker, plus limited edition WNUR socks. Support completely commercial-free, independent college radio by visiting wnur.org slash donate truly revolting radio this is how silicon valley has a drive to automate almost everything in our lives of course the impact on us poor slobs who have to lead our lives with all this automation does not seem to be a priority but hey it's another level of conven- convenience so who are we to complain for instance with the high cost of healthcare care in the united states and thus the lack of accessibility to that healthcare. care Any new technology that can bring us Healthcare should truly be Appreciated. Within healthcare Let's take mental health as an example Having the money and the access to mental Health providers is increasingly becoming a luxury And it's a luxury we all increasingly Need as even prior to the pandemic Neoliberalism was making us all More and more depressed Back in 2018 A year before the emergence of COVID-19 The UK had even opened up a ministry Of loneliness which we discussed in detail With several guests back then now with the pandemic, that need for mental health assistance has increased dramatically. And uh, World War 3 doesn't help either. So what could possibly wrong, be wrong with artificial intelligence now getting into the world of mental health and mental health diagnoses? I mean, we need all the help we can get, right? Well, unsurprisingly, lots can go wrong and AI making mental health diagnoses... Could change the way that all medical diagnoses are determined, and that change could, to diagnoses could be more and more, it could no longer include maybe people like, I don't know, mental health professionals. Who needs human specialists in mental health when we can just look at a programmer-developed algorithm that tells us what our mental health issue is? Yes, it's another frightening future of automation, and we will learn about it in a few minutes when we speak with Keys, who wrote the Real Life article, the Real Life magazine article, Condition Critical AI Mental Health Diagnostics Risk Oversimplifying the Complex Social Dynamics of Any Medical Concern. As is a PhD student at the University of Washington and an inaugural Ada Lovelace Fellow who studies gender, data, technology, and control, all of which will be coming up in our upcoming conversation. Follow us on Twitter at Farbandish. That's F-A-R-B-A-N-D-I-S-H. Find out more about us at ironholds.org. I-R-O-N-H-O-L-D-S ironholds. Dot org. Apparently .com was taken. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host. Producing today is Lindsay Gorey. Alexander Jerry is back there, too, advising, but don't let's all ignore Alex today. Anything new in your world, Lindsay, other than World War III beginning?
1: Um... Well, this is pretty new.
0: <laughs> <laughs> running a board That's pretty new.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I made some collages yesterday. That was pretty new.
0: I thought you were going to say kolachkis. I thought for sure you were going <laughs> to say... I don't even
1: know what that is. <laughs> that's a
0: Polish pastry that's absolutely delish- delicious. What were your? Uh, what's the medium for your collages?
1: Um, well, I used some Greyhound tickets that I found in a duffel bag I found in a dumpster. Um, and then I also made a... I made a collage out of an old Ferrero Rocher tray (laughs) that my mom sent me for Christmas and then um, an old a 2021 calendar you got to use those pictures in there
0: yeah you do hey by the way i know an amazing collage i know an amazing artist but she also does a whole bunch of collages and i should uh, show you her work you would really love it she's a really amazing artist so uh, thank you for joining us here lindsay i really appreciate it thank you yesterday after the show i went downstairs to feed mel the bar cat for carrie's lounge and saw pete carrie's proprietor pete asked if i could suggest any reading on the situation in ukraine i told him i had not because what i had seen was either overwhelmingly usa usa ignoring the west's role and contributing to the tensions you know like the new york times cnn and msnbc and fox news and cbs and abc and nbc and anyway or was so blind to whatever ambitions ukraine had in ukraine that i or russia had in ukraine that i I just had not found any good writing the only good stuff i'd found was western media criticism and how so much was being left out of the way in which we understand what is happening in the region there has been exceptional work in that realm Uh, By fairness and accuracy in reporting, they had an article on January 28th by Bryce Green, What You Should Really Know About Ukraine, and that was very enlightening, as was the report from yesterday, February 23rd, headlined, Western media fall in lockstep for neo-Nazi publicity stunt in Ukraine. And they are both very much worth reading, but I still have not found writing where the roles of the United States and Russia in starting yet another completely avoidable and unnecessary war were detailed. And if anybody, anybody out there knows somewhere, I can find writing anywhere that explains a stupid war that doesn't do any good for anybody other than defense contractors who grew even more wealthy overnight please contact me at chuck at com. all i know is i woke up this morning to very real and confirmed images of destruction of war in ukraine that is until a story from gizmodo popped up on my timeline titled 10 photos and videos from russia's invasion of ukraine that are actually fake even video game footage is going viral during russia's invasion that's not to say that all war footage is fake or but why the hell would anyone be Posting fake war footage It's not even to imply that this war is fake That it's not actually happening That's not what I'm saying So what we want to know if is If you have found any exceptional writing That is not fitted with Western blinders or filled with Russian apologists, please email me At chuck at And we'll do our very best to have them on the show ASAP, by the way CNN's horrible run-up to yet another war was disgusting. You know, that's a term, run-up to war, that didn't exist until 2001. Yet again, at no point did they interview those who were opposed to the war. CNN never did that. Only former U.S. military officials who seemed to be reinforcing the idea of war's inevitability instead of how it can be avoided and what Russia wanted in order to avoid latest conflagration those demands were never reported on cnn or if they were it was offhandedly and dismissively the only difference this time was unlike their 2003 run-up special this time cnn never reported on any polls of people in europe russia the united states or even ukraine for that matter on whether they wanted a war cnn beat us up with those poll numbers all the way up until the invasion and occupation of iraq but this time Nothing but crickets. So why no reporting on poll numbers this time? Not that polls are scientific, but what is with this reporting that omits popular opinion? Again, if you can find any exceptional writing on Ukraine, email me at chuck at Also, does anybody know has a date been set yet for a global general strike against World War III? Because I'm open for any date, I'm very flexible, and as soon as possible is what works best for me. But more important than the potential end of the world, Lindsay, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience? Um,
1: This week's question from Hell is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days?
0: (laughs) What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want That you can find at thisishell.com When you click on support You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page You can tweet it to us You can email it to us But we must have your answer By the end of today's show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth During this week's moment Jeff flags your non-Jewish privilege Lindsay will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell firing our conversation with us on AI invading the mental health space again the question from hell is what are you buying the cheapest version of these days what are you buying the cheapest version of these days we got a whole bunch of emails from listeners and I'll be getting to those following our guest so let me put those aside for now Coming up, Silicon Valley's disruption of mental health care We will also tell you what's happening this week on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash hell. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell As well as the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus This is Hell Granted, we need greater accessibility to healthcare care of all kinds. We need healthcare care that does not make us go bankrupt or burden us with such huge debts. We have to start an online fundraiser just to pay off the interest for those debts. It only makes sense that the convenience of automation could open up that accessibility and drive down those costs. It all makes sense in a country where we have health care for profit, where those profits are often put before the needs of Actual human people So what could possibly go wrong With artificial intelligence replacing Mental health professionals In determining what's bothering us emotionally Psychologically Here to help us out on what could Go wrong Os Keys wrote the r- real life magazine Article condition critical AI mental health diagnostics Risk oversimplifying The complex social dynamics Of any medical concern Welcome to this is how Os
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Farbandish and find out more about us at Ironholds. Org. You start by writing in September 2021, the Wall Street Journal reported on Apple's plans to integrate diagnostic technologies into its phones. The idea is to use their various sensors and features from high-resolution cameras to gyroscopes to usage analytics to assess the possible presence of various medical conditions. The report mainly focused on the technology's capability to potentially detect depression and cognitive decline, as it's called in quotes, but it also mentioned research that, quote, aims to create an algorithm to detect child autism using the phone's camera to observe how young children focus. So to you, is this a... You know, a thoughtful response to the public mental health crisis that has, depend, that has deepened, I should say, with the pandemic—an invasion, or is it an invasion of privacy, or just uh, another kind of surveillance to sell products? In this case, therapy, or is it all of those combined, or something else entirely? Is this uh, an altruistic attempt at helping out people, or is this more profit-seeking?
2: Uh, I guess I would describe it as a. Uh most of those things and others. Um, I definitely don't think that it's altruistic. Um, and the simplest reason for that is, every time someone says that they've got some new startup that does X, Y, Z, or Q, and it's really great for society and people, my next question is, so you're setting it up as a nonprofit, right? And then they look at me like I've grown a second head. Um, like if, if the motivation was genuinely, uh, let's try and help people, then it wouldn't be working with researchers to integrate it into proprietary technology that most people can't afford. It would be working with researchers to make it sort of open source and make it accessible on every phone and so on and so forth. Um, I suspect that from the perspective of uh, Apple, it's yet another like distinguishing feature, right? You should buy an iPhone instead of an Android device because um, we can tell you that your kid needs therapy um it's playing into amongst other things the sort of like increasing normalization of of helicopter parenting that you've got to know everything about your child at all times and if you don't you're a bad parent and for a mere like 40 a month for the next five years you can learn these additional things about your child
0: Well, that all sounds incredibly frightening. You also go on to say that if you haven't been following the breathless announcements and pitches in medical A.I., such aspirations might seem like an... Out there moonshot a what if cooked up by ambitious computer scientists at a tier one university the authority of medicine after all is in part built about the around the idea that doctors are uniquely trained and sensitized to make diagnostic decisions but efforts to develop algorithmic systems who diagnose conditions like autism are actually pretty widespread to the point that your own home institution, the University of Washington, not only works on them, but also on developing data data sets to help others do so with financial support from the National Institute for Mental Health. I have a different question written down here, but before we go to that, what does that financial support from the National Institute for Mental Health say to you about the current state of affairs when it comes to the government's response to mental health concerns?
2: I mean, I don't think that uh, funding for research is inherently bad. In fact, frankly, I'd like to see a hell of a lot more of it. Um, but I think it's it's the way I phrase it is it's telling about like where that research funding goes. That um, that the, there is so much of it around autism that's focused on children and on diagnostics, particularly, is to me extremely depressing because it suggests a particular view of autism as like. A problem that we need to fix, and it impacts kids and children are also, you know, the most like plastic, flexible people. And so, if we diagnose it as early as possible, then we can fix it as early as possible. Um, and you know, I, I am an autistic person and was an autistic child. And to me, even setting aside the various ways that that uh, AI makes things even more complicated and even more painful. Um, treating autism as a thing to be fixed is inherently dangerous because in the absence of like even setting aside the fact that i don't think it needs fixing in the absence of any way to actually do that people end up indulging in like some pretty wacky therapies um like there's the most sort of prominent and out there example that i can think of is uh, chelation collation therapy which is usually used for heavy metal poisoning um and parents end up thanks to this idea of like, you know, if your kids are autistic, their lives are over, Uh, you've got to fix it. Um, Parents end up basically, there's this uh, group of of lunatic doctors in Texas who firmly believe that collation therapy cures autism. Uh, They're wrong, but they believe it. Uh, And people end up basically like going to hardware stores and um, buying chemicals that have some of the same words in them as the drugs in collation therapy and poisoning their children. And that's that's a logical outcome of like, what happens when you um, have this view of autism as a death knell, of, of autism as affecting children and of children as plastic. And so while I'd like more money to go to mental health research from the government, and I think that the NIH is like a good way of doing it, it's depressing to me that how that money is currently distributed sort of reinforces this view. If you just, this is, this is sort of one of the big overarching problems with with this focus on diagnosis. Um, the focus on diagnosis assumes that the problem is diagnosis. That if you could just diagnose everyone, then um, they'd be able to go out and get therapy or like cures or so on and so forth. And that doesn't, like throwing money into diagnosis doesn't magically increase the number of therapists out there or reduce the cost of therapy. It, it basically makes the problem worse. Um, and so to me, it's not so much that the, the government shouldn't be funding these things as it is that they're choosing the wrong place to focus. Um, it's It's kind of like, I don't know, if, if a gas station is on fire, then yes, you should put it out, but at some point you should also maybe turn the like gas tank pump off. And they're focusing entirely on one without looking at this wider structure. So
0: do you think that this is then a distraction from that wider structure, the, the, the distraction from the fact that we do not have enough mental health practitioners, that that mental health uh, service is not accessible to more and more people, and that it is not uh, something that, is un, that doesn't have the burden of intense debt? Is this, a, is this a band-aid for the gaping wound of privatized healthcare here in the United States, privatized for-profit healthcare here in the United States?
2: I think it is. I don't think that it's necessarily an intentional distraction, but I think it's it's definitely something that that people focus on because it seems easy and it's in line with the sort of social norms of like, don't worry, scientists will fix everything and doctors will fix everything. And scientists doing doctor stuff, well, oh, they will fix the most things of all. Um, it's this idea of like, if we have a structural issue, then the solution is going to be some nifty machine, not reconsidering how we handle, you know, the structure. Um, I should also say, like, I think it's, the, the, there are bits of it that are specific to autism and specific to uh, autism researchers and funders and so on, most of whom are not autistic. Most of the research in this area in fact, in autism research, full stop, is not done by autistic people. It's done by the parents of autistic people. And again, if you're a parent, then your priority isn't actually whether your child is happy necessarily. It's whether you've discharged all the duties that you have um, as a parent. It's about uh, fixing the problem. Um, Or if not fixing the problem, then at least knowing that the problem is there so that no one can say you've been falling asleep on the job. Um, And that, I think, is one of the other areas where it goes wrong. It's not just that it's, um, you know, a Band-Aid for a gaping wound. It's that none of the people putting the Band-Aids on have even thought to ask the people whose bodies are wounded whether or not a Band-Aid makes sense or is desired or so on and so forth.
0: And there's also, as you were just pointing out, there's there's also the social norms of ease and convenience that seem to be prioritized over everything else as well. To you, what explains the interest in this technology when there are qualified mental health professionals who already have the capability to do such diagnoses? Why automate mental health diagnoses? Is there a good reason for automating mental health diagnoses?
2: So I don't think that it, it comes from a bad place from the perspective of the individual researchers. Like, I think there are, in some respects, um, good motivations behind it. And the motivations that a lot of people will point to is the fact that, um, as, as you've been pointing to, like, there is an extremely high cost for medical access. Um, there's an extremely high cost to... Uh, access to diagnosis. And this cost isn't evenly distributed, right? Um, Neither is the presence of therapists. Uh, If you are in rural areas, if you are in um, sort of like most countries that don't have say the National Health Service, uh, back where I'm from, um, you are unlikely to have access to a doctor with expertise in this area that isn't incredibly inconvenient. And so I do think it comes from, from a good place. Um, and I don't think that there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with trying to automate sort of parts of the, the medical process. The question is, what do we miss when we just assume that, uh, or to rephrase, is is the thing that we are automating actually a thing that can just be automated? Like you can just, Take out a person and slot in a machine and nothing changes. And I'd argue that diagnosis, particularly psych- psychiatric diagnosis, is, is one place where that isn't the case. And there are a lot of knock-on effects of um, like sticking a machine in place of a person that people aren't really thinking through when they're doing this work.
0: You write that there are several different approaches to AI psychiatric diagnoses, but at their core, they aim to capture and analyze subjects' bodily movements, recording how someone's attention slides or doesn't slide, how their eyes move, their postures, their reaction to stimuli. But you know, we're not all the same, so the same algorithm would not seem to be able to work with everyone. For instance, from birth, I have what's known as a wandering eye that can involuntarily move at any time. So I don't know what this algorithm might think of that. How individualized is this technology, and can it be individualized to the point where it it can be useful?
2: It's the technology itself isn't tremendously individualized. Um, whether it can be individualized enough to be useful or to not replicate the same exactly the same biases in diagnosis which people trying to automate diagnosis point to as their motivation is questionable and to their credit the researchers themselves are asking those questions they're looking at the data sets they're drawing from and they're asking you know how representative is this really of people um if we have a data set that's drawn entirely from uh i don't know like The University of Washington's autism clinic, for example, you know, Seattle is. I was going to say whiter than me, but I don't think anyone is whiter than me. But Seattle is almost (laughs) as white as I am. Um, It's like a place that operates in a particular context, like medicine works in a particular way, like the actual conversations, the relations between the, the doctor and the patient work in a particular way. How generalizable is that likely to be to you know, people who don't fit that norm. And the answer is they don't know. Uh, they're looking into it and I'm glad for that. Uh, but it's it's a pretty big um, problem that you see a lot in AI is because we have to use data from, um, you know, things that have happened before, diagnoses that have already been made. The idea of like automating away bias is kind of impossible because you're drawing from the people who have already been included. And that's not gonna include the very people who you're trying to help.
0: So how much does, or how much access does this technology need to what is otherwise private health information, because that, that would be a real I mean, you know, surveillance when it comes to automation is already a concern that I have. So that would be an incredible concern that I think that most people would have. And you heard all these people talking about private privacy of their health information when it came to the COVID-19 pandemic. So how much access does this technology need to what is otherwise private health information?
2: The, there's bad news and good news there. The the good news is it doesn't necessarily need um, any particular amount of access in the sense of uh, it's it's monitoring you, but at least in theory, it's doing so in a consensual way, right? Like the the analogy would be almost a Fitbit or like the health app, right? Um, it's it's using sensors that you already have, and it's using it because you've explicitly asked it to track this thing or look at this thing. Um, the bad news is. I guess twofold the first is because of this overarching focus on children like we've got to diagnose children we've got to work it out as early as possible it's questionable whether um like privacy in a legal sense even makes sense there because who is the person consenting to like a child's data being captured it's probably not the child it's probably the parent if you're plonking this device in front of a three-year-old uh to try and work out if something's wrong with them then whether or not they particularly want to be there is from a legal perspective and probably from a parental perspective, like neither here nor there. Um, And the other aspect of it, which I find particularly worrisome, that sort of comes from from that in some ways, is how these uh, systems are trained. Like So how they are taught, like what does this look like? Um, How to uh, work out like, what the developers think an autistic person looks like um and the answer to that you know varies but a lot of the time it's using things like um videos from youtube like the parent of an autistic kid will throw the video of their child like having a tantrum or just you know going about their day up on youtube and some uh researcher will go through and grab it and use it in this data and from the perspective of the child like you know that child wasn't asked they're not going to be a child forever they're going to be an adult and by the time they get to be an adult um, uh, a ton of their personal data is going to have been not just thrown out on the internet without their permission but also already reused and um, like worked into these algorithmic systems that that they don't have access to that they're ignorant of like there's no way of telling like, okay, this video is uh, on YouTube and it's been worked into this machine learning system and now it's on everyone's iPhone. That just isn't a thing you can do. Um, And so it's less that it collects new data and more the data that's already out there, it, it uses in new ways. And that's a problem to me because the more places and ways that you use data, the harder it is to track down to get control over it.
0: You, and it just, just to follow up on what you were saying, again, it, se- it would seem like the parent's heart is in the right place in trying to get information and share their information about what's happening with their child, but without considering the long-term aspects, without re- considering the aspects of surveillance and privacy. So I, like you were saying earlier, it's not that their heart is in the wrong place. They're trying to find help and assistance from others, but they just don't think about the long-term situation. You write information is then put into a particular data format, plugged into a machine learning system, and presto, (laughs) automated psychiatric diagnoses. In some respects, this matches existing diagnostic practices, which often rely on questionnaires, checklists, and long standardized assessments from which a point count is extracted, determining whether one falls within a diagnosis. Uh, category, diagnostic category. Think BuzzFeed quizzes, but life altering. The developers believe that automated diagnoses are a means of overcoming the partiality and inefficiency of doctor-directed diagnostics. Is the assumption then that the algorithm is objective? Because when that argument has been made in the past, critics, especially on our show, have pointed out that the people who program the algorithm are not objective. They're not an algorithm. They are people. And therefore, an algorithm always falls short on objectivity. So is that the assumption that algorithms are simply objective?
2: That's definitely the assumption. And that's also one of the problems, right? Um, Is, okay, you're gonna train this algorithm, but you were the one who selected like what data counts, um, selected like what definition of of autism to use, selected that autism should even be the focus here in the first place. Like there's no there's no objectivity to it. Um, but that's which sort of brings me to like the, the sort of bigger issue there. Right. Which is that um, we tend to treat diagnostic categories as if they're stable. Uh, so the developers are working as if um, what autism is, is this this fixed thing that never changes. Um, Or, when it does change, it only changes because we've done more science and now we know more precisely what autism is and how to diagnose it. Um, And in practice, that's simply not the case. Uh, So even if the people are being purely objective, they're still ultimately referring back to a definition of autism which is not objective, which is pragmatic, which is uh, put together through politics because, well, everything is. You
0: also point out there are or these are all, you know, reasonable reactions, part of what has become the standard playbook for the emerging field of algorithmic ethics, which conventionally tends to focus on fairness, whether the outcomes are biased depending on, say, the subject's gender and availability. Such a focus is attractive in part for developers because it implies any issue with an AI system is in its execution and not the ideas behind it. And can be ultimately solved through technical means. So, from the perspective of AI proponents, us is any shortcoming of AI either the fault of the user, not the programmer, or it can be easily solved by updating the program. Is that the belief within uh, AI proponents?
2: I think it, it varies from person to person, um, much much like the taste of soil and green. But uh, it definitely seems to be sort of the the tendency, right? Is first, explain that the problem is the user. Second, explain that um, you being given more power or more data is in fact the solution. Um, The classic example of this is, is facial recognition, right? So we know that facial recognition systems are deeply biased, particularly around questions of gender and race. And so when this came out, one option would have been for the companies to go, oh, I see what you're on about. Police brutality is a thing. We're contributing to the surveillance state. Even if we get this technology perfectly right, the execution will still probably be really biased and end up with people getting killed. The other option, and the option they picked, was, oh, cool, so we need to include more Black people. That's We need to capture more racial minorities, more gender minorities in surveillance infrastructure so that we can make it more accurate. And most famously, Google, um, you know, took this very, very literally. They found a load of people going, hey, your surveillance software is bigoted. And their solution was, okay, let's uh, round up a load of homeless people in Atlanta and pay them five bucks to take their picture and store it indefinitely in these surveillance systems. Um, So yeah, their first answer is usually the problem, like any problem with a machine can be solved with another machine. And by sheer coincidence, this tends to look like any problem with what a programmer does can be solved by giving that programmer more power and more time.
0: Which is frightening. You also point out that treating problems with algorithms as technical rather than political aligns with a particular idealization of medicine in which it is, uh, which it too is, apolitical. How is medicine anything other than? political. Isn't medicine and the science behind it objective? And I know that's, that's very much a devil's Ooh. advocate question, but I just wanted to make sure that people understand this. How is medicine anything but apolitical? And what happens when medicine is seen as apolitical?
2: So medicine is political in the sense of um, it involves politics. It has to. Like, I should be clear, I don't think that... Um, things involving politics means those things are bad i think everything involves politics um but the and and medicine has to be political in the sense of if something is going to have social power then it has to speak to a lot of people and a lot of people's needs um the the reason that we afford uh medicine so much power is in part because you know diagnostic categories for example are not just uh objective out there, like perfect captures of the world. If they were, that wouldn't mean anything. I I could come up with the perfect diagnostic system just doodling in my notepad right now, and nobody would care. Why? Because it's in my notepad. For people to care, it needs to be integrated with um, the expectations of health insurance, the expectations of patients, the expectations of um, providers. And anytime you do that kind of integration, anytime you, you meet in the middle so to speak uh you've moved to the middle you've shifted what you're doing in response to other people's needs needs which aren't pure objective science they're very very practical and again this isn't a a bad thing inherently and it's also not a new thing uh the diagnostic diagnostic statistical manual for example which is the Essentially, the, the Diagnostic Dictionary of uh, Psychiatric Conditions in North America um, is very explicit about the fact that their definitions don't represent like scientific purity, because they can't. Because for it to be a useful book, as well as just an accurate book, it also needs to meet the needs of providers. It needs to be something where the diagnostic categories are things that you can actually apply on a day-to-day basis. You can measure the things that it's talking about. If you came up with a, a perfect diagnostic test that also required like open skull surgery to perform, that wouldn't be used, even though it's perfect, because it simply isn't practical. And so reference to to politics you know, should not be taken as meaning that there's no truth behind it, but simply that any time you look at a diagnostic category, what you're looking at is the outcome, sometimes just the temporary outcome because they shift, um, of debates and fights and people trying to compromise between what the doctor needs for something to be useful, what the patients and patient advocates need for something to make sense, what the insurance company needs for um, you know something to be billable, and what the scientists think is going on. We are speaking
0: with Oss Keys, who wrote the real life magazine article, Condition Critical AI Mental Health Diagnostics, risk oversimplifying the complex social dynamics of any medical concern. You can follow us on Twitter at Farbandish, and you can find out more about us at ironholds. Org. You write, it's important to point out the technical initiations of medical AI and, and how it's currently being executed and their consequences. But as urgent as that is, it is also critical to consider more fundamental questions of how medical AI is embedded in society. It's not merely a question of the insuffici- insufficiency of AI in practice, but the insufficiency of of its promise, rather than merely highlighting how a system fails to perform as expected, we must consider what it is being asked to perform rather than tacitly accept how efficiency is framed as neutral and diagnostics as automatable. We must ask how these assumptions are built into a system's design. The stakes are not only in what happens when AI doesn't work, but what happens when it does. Can AI be dangerous to a patient? patient when it actually does work? And if so, what is the danger it can pose?
2: Absolutely. Um, in, in a few ways, right? So let's take the example of autism diagnosis as, as one. Um, autism diagnosis apps and really any medical AI apps work on a series of assumptions, right? They assume that the diagnostic criteria, the like official standards of this is what the disease is, are static. Um, they assume that diagnosis is the only thing happening with that information um, that, that it collects. Um, and both of these things are, are false in really dangerous ways. So if a person diagnoses someone with a men- medical condition, then they gather a load of data to do that, right? But crucially, that data isn't just used for uh, the diagnosis. It's also used for things like informing what the treatment should be. And if an algorithmic system uh, does it instead, the problem is not just that the system might be obscure. The problem is that the the way that algorithms reason is often very fundamentally different from how humans reason. And it's often very difficult to actually work out how a conclusion was reached. So you have this situation where um, you can't extract, from a diagnosis made by an algorithm, why it made that diagnosis in a way that makes sense to a doctor or to a patient. And when the information from uh, diagnostic decision-making is used to determine treatment, the patient and doctor are both stuck up a creek without a paddle, right? Like you need that information. It's not just enough to know, oh, this person has condition X. You're like, okay, how far is that condition spread? How did you make that determination? Like, what problems are they running into that that factored in if you're just using an algorithmic system you can't access that information which means presumably the doctor then has to do the entire diagnostic process all over again just to work out how the person should be treated which completely defeats the point the other aspect of it though which you know is i find uh, as worrying but worrying in different ways is what gets done with that information so Uh, I'll give you the example of um, borderline personality disorder. So borderline personality disorder is very, very heavily stigmatized um, in society. Uh, It's to the point where if someone has a diagnosis, like not only is it subject to general cultural stigma of sort of, oh, this person's like fundamentally broken and fundamentally unreliable, but that even extends to um, the medical profession, right? There are a lot of therapists who, simply will not treat someone with BPD because they are worried about the reliability or stability of the patient because they think it requires expertise that they don't have. And so people go without support. So at the moment, a lot of doctors are clever, um, and they intentionally give people the wrong diagnosis because if I diagnose someone as a doctor with BPD, sure, insurance will give them access to this drug that I want to prescribe them. But also, they'll feel like crap. They won't be able to access a therapist very easily. That's not great. But if I diagnose them as having like depression and also anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, then they will be able to access therapy. They won't feel like crap because those things don't have the same stigma. And crucially they'll still be able to access the same drugs like insurance provides the same drugs for both conditions um the place where ai makes this tricky is at the moment a doctor has discretion about what to do there right because the doctor is this human interlocutor between uh the insurance company and the electronic medical records and the patient The moment you switch over to an algorithmic system, some bright spark is gonna go, hey, you know what would make things even more efficient? What if we had the diagnoses automatically passed through into the insurance paperwork, into the electronic medical record? That way, nobody even has to type them up. It's even more reliable, it's even more efficient. And of course, what's gonna happen when you do that is that when people have conditions that have stigma associated, conditions where simply having that diagnosis changes the shape of your life the patient's discretion to be like hey please don't put that in my record the doctor's discretion to know that it's not a good idea for the patient's health for that to end up recorded in the way that that it's come out that goes away and suddenly The diagnoses these systems are making just automatically end up like stamped into your records and follow you around in a way that gives less discretion and concentrates more power.
0: You write that from a computational perspective, it's tempting to see existing systems, in this case, the process of coming up with a medical diagnosis as a neat linear series of tasks or actions. This makes interventions a matter of plug and play, swap out a doctor, swap in an algorithm. Under neoliberalism, is that increasingly the way medical diagnoses are understood aside from algorithms? Is medicine becoming more plug and play, thus motivating developers to come up with
2: more automated diagnoses? I definitely think it is. Like it's, it's a broader cultural trend rather than specific to AI itself. The, the way I like to think about it is like, yes, AI likes to see things this way, but that doesn't answer the question of why AI is so prominent right now. What answers that question is the way that AI sees things is aligned with these broader like cultural urges and drives, like as you say, the the drives of neoliberalism. Um, and yeah, it's it's already a thing that's happening in medicine. You can talk to a doctor or talk to a nurse in the last like thirty years, and one of the first things they'll bring up is the way that medical autonomy and medical discretion has been severely cut back. It's about maximum uh, billable conditions in minimum billable time uh and that means that everything needs to fit what the insurance company says is real uh and happen as quickly as possible for efficiency's uh, sake and and so yeah ai definitely didn't come up with this problem but it's contributing to it and i'm not sure if neoliberalism needs any more help it seems to be doing pretty well on its own
0: seems to be doing very well on its own. You write swapping out a doctor who makes diagnostic assessments for an algorithm can go really badly if, for example, doctors use information from their diagnostic assessment to recommend treatment, a recommendation the algorithm cannot make and the doctor would no longer have the information to make. More central to the argument here, though, is the fact that this patchwork compromise approach doesn't just appear in diagnostic practice, but in the very definitions of Diagnoses and a failure to consider That can lead to unforeseen Consequences which you put in quotes Can AI then interfere With a medical professional's diagnosis Can reliance on AI Lead to poor outcomes By medical professionals
2: uh, I think so um, I, I should say The unforeseen consequences being in quotes Is um, sad Originally it linked to uh, Like scene from the video game Half-life But um, The it can lead to like bad direct outcomes. Um, But just as just as I've highlighted around, you know, like discretion to register some diagnoses or not, or um, whether it really gives the doctor access to information that they need to to provide treatment. Um, The bigger issue, though, I think, is um, that it also reshapes the diagnoses themselves. Like if we understand diagnoses as pragmatic, as political, then what one of the things that AI developers are doing when they're proposing like, hey you should slot a algorithm in here instead of a person is that they're saying that future conversations about should we tweak this algorithm uh, should we tweak this diagnosis this way or that way are ultimately going to be conversations that the developers have to play a role in like if this technology gets deployed everywhere for example then um Discussions about how should we change these diagnostic criteria are no longer just about what do patients say they need, what do doctors say they need. They're also about what can the technology actually do. And if we've deployed a technology everywhere that is very constrained, that can say, only analyze visual data or only analyze sound data, then someone trying to include a diagnostic change that goes outside that data, is basically gonna face an uphill battle because they functionally have to propose replacing every single algorithmic system um, and that's a lot harder than just going up to doctors and being like hey so you know how you have ears we'd like you to use them as well
0: you write the diagnostic standards don't exist to be pure representations of scientific knowledge They exist so people can do things with them, so that doctors can use them on a day-to-day basis, so that patients can understand themselves, so that epidemiologists who understand the shape, as it were, of humanity, uh, precisely because all these things are done with diagnoses, precisely because so many actors have an interest in them, they are inevitably going to be the site of political action, as well as putatively objective discovery. The diagnosis definition is where the needs and demands of different stakeholders with different, sometimes contradictory goals can be negotiated. Does a I then to and to some degree set that diagnosis in stone, making it less able to be improved upon even by medical professionals?
2: Precisely. Um, That is a friend of mine, uh, Mahi Hardalupas, who is a wonderful and amazing sort of applied philosopher. Um, And she has this idea, which is like very philosophy heavy, but a really useful idea of um, epistemic calcification, which is basically the way that like, one of the problems with AI is not just that, technology can distort things it's that we have a tendency to embed technology and the definitions that come along with it really deeply in infrastructures like you know connecting them up to electronic medical records connecting them up to insurance companies physically embedding them in um, doctor's offices and and what that means as you point out is that it becomes increasingly difficult to uh change things um they they end up well calcified um it's not if you want to uh update the definitions for uh, psychiatric condition right now the apa has an incredibly long argument about it every like five to ten years and then they ship out a new slightly different textbook that's very different from having to update all of this software and making sure that the updates go everywhere and how accurate is the software and blah, blah, blah. Um, We still have people out there in, particularly in in medical offices, running like Windows 98. I'm not sure why we would believe that they're definitely gonna update their machine learning software. Like, have you ever seen a doctor try and use a computer? It's embarrassing.
0: It is embarrassing, and I've seen them actually have assistants come in to help them use their computer because they have no idea what they're doing. You write that in the 1980s, there was a successful push, as sociologist Gil Ayal and his co-authors document to separate uh, autism and diagnosis. This wasn't motivated by race and autism, I'm sorry. This wasn't motivated by theory developments or research. It was motivated by racism. Childhood schizophrenia, as with adult schizophrenia, was heavily racialized. The diagnosis was disproportionately deployed against black people, and it acquired the cultural association of being a black disease. Middle-class white parents pressured medical bodies to carve what is now What is now called autism out of childhood schizophrenia, which is where it was bundled up before, because they were scared of their kids being associated even conceptually with black people. The changes made to the DSM is where that pressure played out, where that political action has become, has been made, was made efficacious. So autism was a is, was autism a white disease while schizophrenia was black? Is that how it was understood? Because I found that really fascinating. Yet I didn't completely understand it.
2: So um, it's more like like these days, yes, is how I I describe it. Uh, and and there are some fantastic writers. Uh, Lydia X. Brown is is a great one who who write beautifully about the. Particular experiences of autistic people of color, um, but the interesting thing is, back back then, it wasn't so much that uh, autism was a white disease and s- schizophrenia was the black one, as it was that schizophrenia was a class- childhood schizophrenia was sort of a black disease and adult schizophrenia, and childhood autism as a category, like, really didn't exist. Um, it, it it was in the diagnostic manual, but it was very, very narrow, and so very few people were actually diagnosed with it. And childhood schizophrenia basically was <clears> this <throat> catch-all for um, you're doing things we don't like, so in this category, you go. Um, and what happened was that uh, the definitions of childhood autism got broadened so that it became sort of like implicitly white and like marked as white but it was never explicit it was never written down right because that's the way that racialization tends to work a lot of the time um the unmarked is whiteness it's 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 only it's like the the issue of uh, how everyone except white people has a race or or is a racial group and white people tend not to be seen that way um it's it's the same problem
0: you also point out that diagnoses should be premised on thick and rich engagement with the people subject and party to the infrastructures, already in place, not imposed from without. So, due to cost, accessibility, and inequality, do we have a choice when it comes to automating mental health diagnoses? If we want as many people to be able to be uh, have access to that kind of diagnostics, is this? Is this automation not out of convenience or ease, but necessity in a neoliberalized world of medicine?
2: Uh, I'd say both. Um, The way I think about it, I was talking to my students about this just yesterday afternoon, is it's about tactics and strategy, right? Tactically, yeah, it might make sense to um, say like, okay, we don't have a choice. We do need on a day-to-day basis, like more access to mental health care, so Automate we go. The problem is that needs to be backed with a strategic understanding of actually treating efficiency as like the be all and end all of whether a thing is good is why we've ended up in this position, right? Like we, we have stripped back mental health care in part because of this overarching focus on minimizing costs, maximizing efficiency, so on and so forth. And so I think it's it's really important that even if tactically we're like, okay, fine, this will on a day-to-day basis, like help people who are dealing with this world. Um, we also go, but, it, but this world is like partly this, the result of people making decisions like this and we need this much bigger change. In other words, I'm not saying like never automate anything. I'm saying automation needs to be paired with social medicine. Um, It needs to, people who are thinking of automating things need to be asking not just, is this more efficient, but also does this or does this not contribute to um, shifting the way that mental health care is delivered? Like I have no problem with automation if it's paired with, and we're, simultaneously like asking for more resources or demanding like more medical care or trying to broaden the number of people that that we can provide access to but when it's treated as like the be all and end all that's how we end up in this world
0: Uh, i have one last question for you os keys has been our guest os wrote the real life magazine article condition critical ai mental health diagnostics Risk oversimplifying the complex social dynamics of any medical concern. You can follow us on Twitter, at farbandish, and you can find out more about us at IronHolds.org. Before I ask our final question for today, I just want to say this has been truly a privilege and an honor, and very enlightening. And you can count on me annoying you for the rest of your life to come back on our show because this really, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and really enjoyed your perspective on this. One, however. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Does universal health care solve all of the problems AI is trying to solve with mental health? Can, for instance, universal health care destigmatize mental health?
2: Not necessarily, but it gets a good long chunk of the way there. Like, it's, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna solve all problems, but it's gonna solve some problems. And frankly, it's gonna be a hell of a lot easier to work out what the solutions to all problems are when people aren't given a choice between selling their left kidney or not getting treatment. It's kind of hard to work out like, you know, how do we structure the politics of X, Y, Z, Q when those are the options you're faced with.
0: As, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm not kidding, we're gonna be bugging you into eternity and let's hope that eternity is a much longer time than it's looking like it is as world war three approaches thank you much As. i really appreciate you being on the show today thank you Take care. <clears throat> pretending to know what i'm talking about since 1996 this is hell if that conversation with us on ai mental health diagnoses was in some way informative enlightening or made you realize that yes this is hell Show your appreciation by going to WNUR.org slash donate right now and show your support for Chicago Sound Experiment. WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment is Northwestern University's non-commercial student run radio station. WNUR has been on the air since 1950 with programming ranging from jazz to experimental rock, house music, talk radio, hey, talk radio, sports news, and much more. WNUR has served the countercultural communities of Northwestern University and Chicago and Evanston for 70 years. Over the years, 72 years this year, over the years, the station has repeatedly been recognized for its role in shaping the college radio landscape across The United States. Today, the station broadcasts on HD signal accessible to over 3 million listeners throughout the Chicagoland area. I wonder how we get on that. As an organization, WNUR strives to provide a forum for underrepresented music and ideas by promoting musicians, musical genres, news, public affairs issues, and athletic events often overlooked by major media outlets. Moreover, we aim to provide an inclusive space for people to learn and express themselves by exploring and promoting underrepresented content and in turn sharing that knowledge with others. If you go to WNUR.org, Slash donate right now. You can show your support for all of NUR's support of This Is Hell. At each of WNUR's donation levels, Chicago Sound Experiment would like to show thanks for your donation with a special gift. When going to WNUR.org slash donate, please refer to the descriptions under each donation tier, those being Contributor level, donor level, silver, gold, diamond, and platinum levels of donation. Donate at the contributor level of $10 and get a WNUR sticker for $25. You can give at the donor level and get a WNUR t-shirt and sticker. You can donate at the silver level of $50 and receive a WNUR tote bag, t-shirt, and sticker. Then there's the gold level of $70, which gets you a hand-picked limited edition vinyl record a WNUR beanie, the tote bag, plus the t-shirt and the sticker. There's also the diamond level at $125 that gets you all that stuff, plus the WNUR hoodie. And finally, there's the platinum level. And with a donation of $250, you get hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, as in plural, as well as the WNUR hoodie, tote bag, beanie, t-shirts, and t-shirt, and stickers, plus Limited edition WNUR socks. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio now by visiting wnur.org slash donate. This week's question from Al is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Al wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that you can see right now at ThisIsHell.com when clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer pretty much right now as we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff flags your non-jewish privilege lindsay do we have any more answers to this week's question from hell
1: yes we have quite a few oh sweet um so the question is uh what are you buying the cheapest version of these days at rock taster says u.s currency (laughs) people be trading fat stacks of that shit for food
0: yikes
1: (laughs) Greg Grossmeyer says Outrage um, David Totman says Crocs <laughs> um, Paul Nice Good says Nord Stream to Stock
0: <laughs> Paul Nice Good
1: Nor- um, Hypocrite Reader says Black Market Kidneys <laughs> um, At Eat Fart 69 says Shots <laughs> Um, Bone, Bones Dracul Hell Yeah says, <laughs> okay. nothing. I'm working towards the delusion of ethical consumption by paying more for the least morally bad options. Oh,
0: that's very It's thoughtful. not
1: working. <laughs> no,
0: it wouldn't be. <laughs>
1: And Chris Kozak says podcasts.
0: Sweet, sweet. Coming up, we will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell, or I should say the rest of your answers to this week's Question from Hell, What Are You Buying the Cheapest Version of These Days? Uh, And also coming up, Jeff Dorch in The Moment of Truth. And uh, what's happening on... uh, Oh, we're also going to be announcing this week's winner of the Question from Hell, and we'll also be telling you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from hangover country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do, One more time!
3: A communist in every other welcome to the moment of truth the whatever while we were on break we missed the entire ass tasmanian regatta valentine's day and my 60th birthday i don't think it's too much of a reach to blame all this on anti-semitism you laugh you say what you say a reach you're not even stretchy jeff you're chunky stiff and globular and it's true I can't even fly. The faster I move, the more my toes stick to the ground. Thanks for reminding me of my pathetic mortal limitations. You might not make the connection between anti-Jewish nanoaggressions and the Tasmanian regatta. Well, that's your goisha privilege. Enjoy it, Gentiles. You ride that Gentile privilege right to the top. Right to the top of your industries. You may not make any connections at all between reality and my current ravings. Allow me to quotate you a quote from a friend, Eric Zimmerman, video artist, producer, and writer. Jews, are we the other white meat, the other dark meat, or just the other? If that doesn't explain anything, and I don't see why it would, perhaps additional disjointed raving will help you. Sarah Silverman, the comedian and Jewish sex symbol, And she's the only one we have left, so be kind. Tweeted a link to an opinion piece in the New York Times called, Is It Funny for the Jews? For those of you uninitiated, that's a play on the phrase, Is it good for the Jews? which is supposedly how most Jews have evaluated all newsworthy phenomena dating back to when the news first started being casually termed current events. Go back to my moment of truth of April 14, 2012, entitled The Esterhausen-Gibson Affair. Good for the Jews? It's available at my old website, www.mejeffdorchen.oblivio.com. That'll give you some fun additional info on the subject of non-Jewish chutzpah. The Times article is okay. It talks about Jewishness and current discourse around it in relation to identity politics, especially when it comes to representation in the entertainment industry. Jews have played an outsized role in that industry compared to their percentage in the general public. But Jews are not immune from making anti-Semitic misjudgments. It's a truism that Jews are wary of presenting too much Jewishness in mainstream entertainment. Seinfeld according to the times article was originally rejected for being too new york too jewish jews are rarely cast in the role of jewish hero from moses and jesus to rosa luxembourg and the fabulous mrs mazel while it irks me that mrs mazel is played by a shiksa it utterly enrages me that she plays a supposedly hilarious stand-up comic i have yet to hear the character tell a funny joke on stage on that show yet She supposedly kills, like, all the time. And all the time, her lesbian manager is funnier than her. If I was a lesbian manager, I'd be shaking my head saying, Isn't it the truth? The straight femme woman who shows her tits gets the spotlight, while the actually humorous Butch Dyke, who resembles Lou Costello, does all the hard work. I'm offended, first and foremostly as a bottom-tier humorist, secondly as a wannabe lesbian, thirdly, as a wannabe manager, and only a distant lastly as a Jew. Jewish irritation with popular anti-Semitism has taken its toll notably on black entertainers. Whoopi Goldberg, no relation to my neighbors growing up, is only the most recent example. Arsenio Hall being reviled for booking Louis Farrakhan on his late-night talk show is a famous one. According to Arsenio himself, though, His show wasn't canceled because of booking that guest. He had submitted his letter of resignation months before that interview was even thought of. And I think it's a symptom of anti-Semitism, including my own, that it's commonly believed Jewish pressure got Arsenio canceled. It's no secret that accusations of anti-Semitism are abused by us Jews ourselves, targeted to shut down discussions of Israeli military and U.S. policies of domination and cruelty, as well as to distract from noticing, let alone addressing, the countless micro-propagandas we're all subjected to daily. Eric Alterman, of what we call the reasonable anti-Zionist movement among the Jewish left, alludes to this tension when he noted in a recent American Prospect column that mainstream Jewish organizations hate, if not now, a liberal left group far more than they hate apartheid in the West Bank, which, to be honest most are pretty comfortable with it's also no secret that anti-semitism is used by non-jews to spread insane theories about insidious jewish power and to dovetail those jew baiting narratives with equally insane ones labeling everyone they don't like communists the left anti-zionist jew and the left anti-carceral black and the squad along with the clintons the obamas the critics of Rogan, Chappelle, and Bill Maher and drag queens who read stories to toddlers are all lumped in under communism, to which is attributed all manner of evils, real, imaginary, and entirely divorced from even terrestrial paranoid fantasies. From teaching critical race theory to secretly sterilizing white people to being child molesting lizards and beyond. So between being massacred in synagogues by right-wing Fruit Loops and having communists help Palestinians push Israel into the sea, the easily frightened Jew has a lot to worry about, real and imagined. The rise of Nazism and Nazi-flavored populism around the world is, to me, though, a genuine thing to spend time opposing. I don't have anything to prove in this regard. I won't point to representation or tolerance of that person's or this person's rhetoric and how it gets played in the news. If Mel Gibson and Joe Esterhaus want to make a biopic about the Marx Brothers starring the Jonas Brothers, fine with me. It won't be any good, though. But I will insist that a coalition of fossil fuel companies, libertarian tech kingpins, cue holes, centrists in government, evangelicals, right-wingers in Europe and worldwide, and Bannon-esque internalizers of fascism that coalition, enabled under a legal climate that privileges profit-seeking over any other motivation, is a threat to all life. And as far as anti-semitism is part of the rhetoric keeping public discourse on that entirely wrong track, it's objectionable. When someone here in Laurel Canyon, who is a known anti-vax Trump supporter, says to some Jewish friends of mine, Well, the Jews killed Jesus. Clearly without a clue as to the deep historical terrorism such a statement taps into, what's the proper response? Is it counterproductive for me to point out, the Jews didn't kill Jesus because Jesus never existed. He's an imaginary character. Or is it maybe good to sow the seed in this gentleman's mind that his entire worldview is a self-fellating fantasy? Might that realization bear fruit before he joins a militia or maybe even to up the stakes as we in Hollywood say just before he's about to rip a baby from her mother's arms a la Sophie's Choice and take it to the gas chamber Incidentally Meryl Streep who's played Ethel Rosenberg among other Jewish characters is a Germanic Presbyterian on her best day That's a fail, not an epic fail though Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston as Judah Ben-Hur is an epic fail Christian Bale as Moses in Exodus, Gods and Kings, is an epic fail. But, you know, if it's not one thing, it's another. And if you still don't see how all this is connected to the Tasmanian regatta, I don't blame you. This has been the Moment of Truth.
0: Good day! I am so... So glad I did not know the Christian Bale played Moses in a movie called Exodus. <laughs> have you seen this movie? I have not. I have. I have not. I. I uh, no. So I'm just curious because uh, you know Charlton Heston <laughs> as Moses. Uh, he once he becomes he. Uh, goes to the burning bush and, re- mm-hmm. and gets the message from God, he comes down and uh, all of a sudden has a white wig on and will not make eye contact with Ava Gardner for the rest of Ten Commandments. So I just wondered if that's what Because I think that uh, is historically <laughs> true, correct? Right? Moses came down, that's had exact- white hair, and all of a sudden wouldn't make eye contact with anybody?
3: He did. He had a shock of white, m- much like uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. He had a shock of white going through his hair and beard. And uh, Ava Gardner held, no even though she said, "Moses, Moses," she he just he just couldn't he he, he just couldn't be uh, lured by her charms.
0: I'm going to let you go because I can hear Beelzebub coming up through your plumbing right now.
3: Uh, yeah. So, you know, we almost made it through the whole thing without a. Buzz saw noise. It was Oh well.
0: What are you anyway, gonna do? Jeffy. I, I'm gonna move. <laughs> are you? Uh no. Yeah. I I can't afford to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Jeffy. Yeah. Until next week. What? Stay beautiful. All right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell, and we are in the midst of the "This is Hell" Phonathon fundraiser. Please go to wnur.org/donate and donate right now. Support completely commercial-free, independent college radio by visiting wnur.org/donate. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how the rest of our listening audience is responding.
1: This week's question from hell is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? Um, so the remaining responses um, from Eric T., hopes and prayers.
0: A good one. Those are cheap usually anyway. They're free, I think.
1: <laughs> Joel G. says, politicians. All right. Um, Jamie K., says, Soylent Green.
0: <laughs> By the way, I liked how us said, Soylent Green tastes different for everybody. I love that throwaway line he just <laughs> said in the middle of the interview. Uh,
1: qu- so, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? Um, Ye Hoke says, My own labor. If anyone is going to exploit me and undercut my ability to support myself and live under capitalism, it might as well be myself for uh, once.
0: That's a great response. Keep going.
1: I agree. Uh, flying N flying needle says uh, representation
0: okay
1: um peter s says generalized anxiety that's cheap mike g says i'm buying the cheapest version of this as hell's patreon support but not by choice sorry chuck
0: <laughs> well the cheapest level is very cheap so go ahead
1: um it looks like... And then there's one more response. Um, it looks like I copy and pasted the same one. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> the, but the, there was a response from at IIII, um, and they also said politicians. Oh,
0: so there's a couple of people who believe that politicians are the cheapest thing that they're going to get. Uh, so again, the question from hell is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? The answers I liked most were... Like Lindsay was just saying, I really like your hoax answer about my own labor if anyone is going to exploit exploit me and undercut my ability to support myself and live under capitalism and it might as well be myself for once. Eric T. saying hopes and prayers. Kim G. saying myself. Thomas K. saying flies for the ointment and sand for the gears. Uh, Fabio saying, JPEGs of monkeys, zero cents if you right click cheap. Sloan saying, Salvation, again the question from hell, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? David I saying, Thrills, cheapest thrills. Garrett S saying, Love. Paolo S saying, Excuses. I really liked Rockstar saying, US currency. And Greg G. saying outrage, but because of the events of the day and what is happening around the world, the winner of this week's question from hell, again, the question from hell, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? Paul N said, Nord Stream 2 stocks. That's this week's winner for the question from hell. Please, Paul, get in contact with us as soon as possible, and we will send out whichever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like to get. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, look at all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support, and then send us your mailing address telling us which one of the pieces, which piece of our swag you want, and we'll get it in the mail. Post-haste, my answer to this week's question from Hell, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days, is peace. At this point, I would take any version of peace, no matter how cheap it is or how expensive. I, I just don't care. I just want what the world wants, and that's peace. And the vast majority of the world wants peace. And this is a minority decision when we're going into war. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from Hell putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. Subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell and get access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams uh, at patreon.com slash this is hell and his podcast shortly after at the same place. This week on Patreon, it's another chapter in my love, hate, hate, love relationship with this is hell. Yes, of course, there are aspects of doing the show I absolutely love, obviously, or I wouldn't have been doing it for close to 26 years now, but there are also things I loathe, I detest about doing This Is Hell that leave a horrible taste in my mouth on a seemingly Daily basis. On Patreon this week, we are also sharing a 15 year old conversation from February 24th, 2007. That conversation was with Carolyn Pierce from the Jubilee Debt Campaign, which works jointly with Oxfam UK and their Vulture Fund Campaign. Back then, we were just learning about vulture funds, which buy up debts in distressed economies for a fraction of their value, only to later sue for the full value of of that debt plus interest so you will be hearing that conversation from 15 years ago also on our patreon podcast if you subscribe but you can only hear about my intimate love-hate relationship with doing this is hell and a 15 year old talk on the debt jubilee and vulture funds by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell lindsay do we know yet who is going to be on next week's show uh
1: we believe that next week Daniel Miel, um will be talking about his um, essay on Black Agenda Report called The Capitalist Imperative Driving Cruel and Bipartisan U.S. Migration Policies.
0: Anybody else confirmed yet?
1: No. no.
0: <laughs> I like the, no, the pre-echo, no. I thought that it would be a post-echo, but it was the statement by Alex saying no. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is B vitamins and zinc. Thanks to this week's guests in order. Sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of Black and White Space, the enduring impact of color in everything, everyday life. Also, thanks to Daniel Fernandez, who wrote the baffler magazine article the classroom in the cell who benefits from prison education and finally thanks to today's guest i really enjoyed today's conversation os keys who wrote the real life magazine article condition critical ai mental health diagnostics risk oversimplifying the complex social dynamics of any medical concern also, thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing or for uh, running the board on today's show. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper and Daniel Hill for also running the board this week. Thanks to Richard Norwood for coming in and helping with the training of our board operators. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in, host- in hostage. This week in rotten history. Special thanks to Theron Humiston. Eh, just because. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash how There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid.
2: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity
3: like a sailor.